Hey guys, Julio Ricardo Varela here, Latino Rebels Radio, Sunday, January 5th. We're taking another week off. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, our friends at the Latino Media Collective gave us one of their shows, so here they are. The Latino Media Collective on Latino Rebels Radio. Escuchando in Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective, recorded at the studios of WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. El Distrito Colombia, here on this Friday, November 1st, 2019. We're also heard on the internet on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez. And today on the show, we continue our special series on the undocumented and LGBTQ experience, the marginalized group within the marginalized group, the caravan within the caravan. And on this episode, we spend the hour remembering one of the unsung heroes in documenting the Latinx LGBTQ community, the late, great Professor Horacio Roque Ramirez. Recognized by his peers as a scholar of the invisible and forgotten, the work of Ramirez shows how close to the front lines the Latinx LGBTQ community 
really was to the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. During his academic career, he helped bring ideas like queer survival and queer theory to Latinx academia. As a result, a younger generation of Latinx scholars have taken his teachings and research to further raise awareness of the struggle for Latinx LGBTQ rights both here and abroad. Horatio Roque Ramirez may no longer be with us, but his legacy lives on thanks to the help of scholars and independent journalists like today's guests. So with us in studio today is Giuliani Alvarenga. He's a freelance writer for thebody.com. He has a 2018 obituary entitled Remembering Horatio Roque Ramirez, and he joins us again in studio today. Welcome to the show, Giuliani Alvarenga. Thank you so much for having me, Oscar. And actually, it's good to have you with us because we had you right about this time last year as well in this undocumented and LGBTQ series. So it's actually great to meet you here in person here. It's really nice to be here. I love DC and I'm excited to to honor, you know, Horacio and kind of like share the work that he's done. I know a lot of people have a, a connection and, and, and feel very um, saddened over the fact that he left us so abruptly, but there's still so much to talk about and so much to honor. So thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been four years since his passing, and it's it's not an understatement to say that he's one of the unsung heroes in this type of academia. So let's just start right there. Let's go straight to the million-dollar question. For those people who do not know, even those within the LGBTQ community, who was Horatio Roque Ramirez? Yes, so... Professor Roque Ramirez was a gay Salvadoran man who grew up in Los Angeles. Um, his his sister is actually a reporter. She works for um, uh, I, I don't know if it's either Telemundo or Univision, but she's very well known in the Los Angeles community as a reporter, as an anchor. And um, yeah, so he he definitely left behind a legacy of like Central American identity, especially in Los Angeles, because and and also me having grown up in in East Los Angeles, you know, like he his his legacy and and what he wrote about also really resonates with a lot of us queer Central Americans who grew up in SoCal, and so even though his research also took place in San Francisco area because that's where he did his research, he went to Berkeley and then. He he's just started to like a lot of what, what he did as a grad student came from interviewing queer people in La Misión who are like, you know, Latinos, you know, and, and honestly, like La Misión also has like that very similar quality, you know, that Los Angeles folks have. You know, it's it's definitely about being with comunidad and and just being able to like walk the streets and you kind of feel the sense that you're at home, especially with like the dialogue that you hear and, and the people that you encounter. And so his research really did f heavily focus on queer um, Latino folks living in the mission and how HIV played such a huge role back then, especially in his time when this was a very new um, situation that people were going through very different than my own generation now. You know, like I, I, I became HIV positive in a time when there was now medicine that you could become undetectable. Back then, undetectable wasn't even a word people would have thought that they could accomplish, you know? And so it was definitely a different world. And I appreciate that he was brave enough to, to take those stories with him and 
and be the scholar of the invisible. And your article also brought to my attention this particular field of Latinx LGBTQ academia is really very lively, more so out on the West Coast than it is perhaps here in the East Coast. And Roque Ramirez is, is a fine example of that. So one of his works that you mentioned in your article, Remembering Him, is this essay entitled the Des- This Desire for Queer Survival. This Desire for Queer Survival. Can you tell us about this essay? Because you actually read it, didn't you? Yes. So this essay, he, um, he, he really does talk a lot about his, um, his struggles with, with his research and also being like understanding himself as a gay Salvadoran person. You know, it's a very personal, almost like manifesto memoir that he writes. And it's very intimate and, and well-written. And this is actually like one of the few pieces of writing that I have where I feel like I can deeply connect with Horacio because, like I said before, though he did guide me along with some of my research, he was in Santa Barbara when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, so we didn't really get a chance to see each other a lot, you know? I would write to him every so often. He would respond. He would give me a list of readings that I could, you know, brush up on for the work that I was doing because I was doing a summer um, fellowship at the time, and I was doing research around queer Central American literature, queer ethnic literature, and so... He was just giving me some writers to brush up on some queer writers that I could connect with. And so those were the few interactions that I had with Horacio. And so reading this memoir, I feel like I got to see another side of him a little bit more intimate outside of like corresponding, talking about research. This was definitely something more intimate that he was sharing for people to understand. And what really, really resonates with me, and this is obviously me reading this article after his passing, was something, you know, kind of reading between the lines, you could sense where he was talking about how I don't want academia to kill me because he also shared how, you know, he had lost people as well along this way. And it just really resonated with me because it, it just told me how violent these institutions are, how institutional racism can really grapple you. And um, that's actually something that I'm personally dealing with in my law school too. So now Mm. coming from that perspective and understanding how, it is to be a queer Central American person in these spaces and the politics of it all can be very consuming. And what do you do? What are your healthy outlets? You know, so even though Horacio is no longer with us, I always see him as one of my ancestors, one of my mentors. And for better, for worse, you know, I, I understand that he was battling demons and so and things that he had, you know. And so for me, it's always like, regardless of that, like understanding him as a maestro, like what would, what could I do also to navigate situations similar to the ones he maybe had faced in, as, as in these institutions. And so that, that article, that, that piece of writing that he wrote was just very well written and intimate for me. Absolutely. And this is precisely one of the reasons why we do this undocumented and LGBTQ series to bring the spotlight to unsung heroes like Horatio Roque Ramirez. And I myself may not be LGBTQ, but as a student of journalism, one of the things in your article in remembering him that really caught my attention, that really excited me as as far as seeing how, you know, journalism can be used the right way and the productive way 
is perhaps the use of obituaries in documenting the Latinx LGBTQ community. I wonder if you could walk us through Horatio's method of using obituaries as a means of documentation. And before you answer that, the reason this stimulates me is because, you know, for lack of a better term, I was taught in journalism school that, you know, studying or or in this case, covering the obituaries is sort of the graveyard shift of newspapers mm -hmm. in that, you know, it's a lot of sadness and, you know, heartbreak conveyed in in documenting these sort of things. But at the same time, as a journalist, this is information that's in the public record. And based on what Roque Ramirez did, very valuable information as a result. Can you, so can you walk us through this, this use of obituaries in documentation? Yeah, so his methodologies were very, very unique. And I know that it must have not been easy to document these stories. As a matter of fact, I remember doing my research and recalling that one of his colleagues who he wrote the book with, uh, wrote a book with, had mentioned that, um, yeah, he almost felt like he was carrying a burden. And I can understand that because vicarious trauma is very real. <laughs> you know, yeah. I feel like no matter what we do, if you're, if you're doing, um, if you're taking down obituaries, interviewing people about sensitive topics or like, in other cases, like if you're, for example, doing immigration work, you're taking down testimonies, like declarations, you know, like people's stories can really affect you in a way where it can take you to a dark place. And so that vicarious trauma, I feel, is, is very important to recognize when people are doing this type of work so that it won't consume you. I feel that Horacio really did go through that kind of experience on top of personal things that he went through. But, you know, he, he, he definitely did take down stories from people who were forgotten, essentially, right? These were people that were queer, undocumented, poor, living in the streets, um, possibly just kind of like getting through, getting by. And had it not been for his research, his th this sort of like queer understand this this demographic of queer identities wouldn't really have been honored the way that we would have had it not been for Horacio, you know? And I think that that's what's really important about his research and, and also recognizing that this research wasn't easy for him to do, you know, spiritually. Absolutely. And again, I cannot understate the importance of using obituaries to do this sort of documentation because people may not read newspapers as often as they used to, but this is information that's in the public record and, again, you know, speaks volumes to how much rich information even if it is, you know, at times depressing and sad, is still valuable for the general public to understand what happened to this community, especially when we talk about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, you know, especially, you know, because otherwise we're talking about a period that there was no social media, there was no YouTube or or Facebook to document these things as easily as we can now in this in this day and age. Um, and just to add a little bit ahead. to that too, though, because you make such a great point when we're talking about this era before you know social media came about, and around this time we had like the HIV epidemic, right? So a lot of people were already kind of like dying, from what I've read and understood, and and, and also from what people have told me, elders, right? You know, San Francisco, the Castro was completely empty. It was a, it was deserted. Nobody would go there. Every now and then, you maybe you'd go to a bar or two. You'd see some people just kind of like, just like sulking, just kind of like sad. And 
and depressed and maybe um, mourning the death of, of a friend, right? Because they just started just dying in numbers. And sometimes because of the stigma behind their deaths, they wouldn't even tell you what happened to them. But you could imagine, you could already tell that maybe something happened to them, that maybe their family or friends may be too embarrassed or shy to share, but that they definitely died because of this this shadow, right? This shadow of AIDS, of AIDS coming through. And I think that that's another reason why his work is just so important. Like he took it upon himself to make sure that people were recognized. And I think that speaks volumes. I feel like someone who can empathize in a certain way, being HIV positive and just, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in that time, but now being being alive right now and, and just wishing to be remembered, I think, is what is so it's what's it's what's so raw about what his work was about like just the fact that he took it upon himself to remember these people is what makes it really incredible and that's why i i want to remember him too because he was such an he was such an amazing person and and i'm sure other people who worked cl- closely with him like his men like his mentee some um, Esther Trujillo who's now a badass professora out in DePaul I understand it must be really hard for her to share things about Horacio because that was her advisor, you know? But I'm pretty sure that she's doing the work that she does now because of him as well, because he inspired her in a way. You know, it's not so often that I'll do like a movie recommendation during the course of a show, but there is this film called Tinta Roja, which is a 2000 film, which is a slash Spanish-Peruvian production. And it's about a reporter doing the uh, obituary shift at a newspaper. And I, the reason I bring this up, because during the course of your of your obituary on Horatio Roque Ramirez, it reminded me about the character in that film who ultimately gets, you know, consumed by the sometimes depressing nature of covering obituary. So anyone listening, Tinta Roja, I highly recommend it because I think it lends itself to some of what we're discussing here. One of the things that he also brought up during the course of his of his work during his lifetime was his organization called Proyecto Contra Sida por Vida. So can you tell us what that is? Definitely. So this was definitely a grassroots community-led organization that started in the mission in San Francisco. And it was actually a project that many academics, activists, and artists took upon themselves, como Ricardo Bracho, um, Juana Rodriguez, who was actually a professora at, um, at Berkeley. She was actually in my, I was in her department in gender women's studies. Oh, wow. <laughs> An incredible woman. Um, a professor out here by the name of Ricardo Ortiz. They're really close. He's also queer like her. Son Cubanos. And so really great people. Just to bring back some <laughs> DC folks into the mix. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really cool person. And so, and yeah, she took it upon herself con Horacio and Ricardo and a few other folks in the community and, and, and making a program that really brought about HIV awareness, AIDS, to be sex positive, to come from a place where you're not following this systemic um these this this systemic way of like approaching public health and really coming in in a way that's very innovative you know i feel that the way that they spoke about the work maybe the way that they would bring it about like at gatherings or you know within people in the community really wasn't so much uh 
I feel like it may, it may have been more of a collective than something that you would normally now see in public health spaces. And I think that that was just a way of understanding one's own lived experiences at that time and how you could um, survive in a way, like really finding ways to survive with, within this. I mean, I can't even imagine, but I could, I could picture it being very grassroots and how they were trying to bring it in the community, verdad? especially in places where where it was maybe predominantly Latino, you know? I'm thinking like 16th and Mission, 24th and Mission out there in SF, you know, and just kind of like bringing about that conversation. Um, and it's funny because as I, as I mentioned these places, I'm picturing it and I just, I would, I, just, I would love, to, I mean, I can't really put myself in those shoes because I wasn't alive back then, pero just to try and imagine what that would have been like, you know? What would it have been like to to work alongside them or like um, in that time? Like I'm thinking the 80s or 90s now, maybe. Yeah, I was alive. I was already alive in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like trying to like imagine though, like a time when San Francisco was going through that type that epidemic actually, and it's um I imagine it was very difficult. Not only that, but for Central American LGBTQ migrants at that time, you had the dark cloud of the numerous civil wars that were taking place in the 80s during during this time. So I tell Kenyon, yeah, like my mentor for the, from the body, that like the, the HIV epidemic and what happened within countries in Cent Central America really was como un choque, like a clash. It just happened in mm. that kind of like era, that Ronald Reagan era. And it's it's just it's just a lot that we were going through, right, as community and and by community I mean communities, right? Someone who could identify in other spaces too. And so that is just something that needs to be written about more and just focused on. And I hope and I'm sure there's scholarship going on now around that, but I really do hope that what Horacio has left behind is this legacy and this thirst to understand our queer Central American identities. And um, whoever decides to take upon that type of research, I, uh, I hope that they do good work and that they honor Horacio and just sort of like remember those that came before us. Because when I do HIV work, I try to be mindful of that at least, to be like, yeah, this is definitely a different era, a different lived experience than what other people have faced. And so how can I understand what they've gone through? What can I learn? What can I say? And what can I do to honor that, you know? Yeah, well, now that you brought it up, what is queer Central American studies as you interpreted it in your article? Because it's it seems like, um, you know, it's very easy to document things in recent times with the, you know, the the means of modern communication. How far back did he go, though, you know, as far as the 90s and 80s? But again, going back to the original question, what is queer Central American studies as, as you interpret it through the work of Roque Ramirez and how you go, go through it yourself? Because there's a lot going on even right now as we speak when it comes to the plight of LGBTQ people in Central America. Yes, and quite honestly, right now, I feel like I'm a little out of the loop in academia. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really been in there. I'm in law school, and so I can't really speak about these these spaces anymore as much when I was, as when I was an undergrad, and I thought I was going to go down that route. 
But um, Maya Chapina is also another incredible queer Guatemalan academic artist who is doing great work in California. And she would be someone, just a source of knowledge, someone to talk to. Uh, I also want to like, just give a shout out to Lacey Abrego, who is a Salvadoran professor at UCLA. <laughs> uh, let me stop you right there, because she's been on my radar for some time as as far as being on the show. So, Lacey, if you're listening, saludos. You know, shout out to Lacey right there. But go ahead. Yeah, she's also just another ally. When you think about allies, you really, Central American allies, I think Lacey is definitely someone that can really just give you that type of support. And and she, I even quote her in my article because she uses Horacio's work still, especially when she's trying to talk about queer Central American identities because that's something that Horacio always left for her to understand. I feel like maybe he didn't necessarily like, like teach her like anything directly, but just his presence alone really inspired her to learn more herself, you know? And that goes back to what we said at the beginning, that although he may be gone... Many other scholars have taken his uh, his research and and carried it forward. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And that's what I hope that this continues to happen. Right. Uh, and I feel like that's what Maya's trying to do right now. She's coming out with a book, and she's honoring Horacio as well. So, you know, it takes a village. You know, aquí estamos plantamos nuestras semillas, and we just see it grow. You know, and that's where we're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. Because our model here is that there's no struggle for social justice too small that it doesn't deserve our attention. You know, from just one person, Horacio Roque Ramirez, now we have, as you mentioned already, several other scholars in this similar field that have carried his his research forward and to not only advance it, but to expand upon it as well. We're speaking with Giuliani Alvarenga. He's a freelance writer for TheBody.com. We're speaking about the undocumented and LGBTQ experience. This is a Latino media collective. We're going to take a quick break right here. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned.
pasa, caminan muy lento, pierden el tiempo hora tras hora, derramo el tequila, aplasto tus flores, ¿qué hice yo? ¿qué hice para merecer esto? ¿qué hice yo? ¿qué hice para merecer esto? That was Zemoa, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington, reminding everyone that you could check us out on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And, of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to the Undocumented and LGBTQ series on the Latino Media Collective, The Caravan Within the Caravan. And we're speaking with Giuliani Alvarenga, who's a freelance writer for TheBody.com, and we're speaking about the late, great Horatio Roque Ramirez. So let's try to apply some of Ramirez's uh, teachings and, and ideas to what's going on right now in this present moment in time with regards to, you know, the, as, as it's called, the immigration crisis. And we've touched on several stories with regards to discrimination against LGBTQ migrants coming to the U.S., whether it be from El Salvador or Honduras or, or Guatemala or where have you. So in your opinion, how would you apply Ramirez's work in trying to understand the plight of undocumented LGBTQ migrants today, because one of the first names that, that comes to mind and one that we've covered several times here is the death of trans migrant Roxana Hernandez under ICE custody. That's just one of, unfortunately, several other similar type cases that have taken place under U.S. detention. So give us your thoughts here. Yeah, I think that like he would be really good at capturing people's stories and making sure that the readers would understand what took place? Who was this person? Why did they die? And there, and and the people that he interviewed were very much queer, marginalized people, transgender folks who may not even make it in like mainstream LGBT spaces, right? Because of the fact that they're migrants and they're not white. And so I feel like he really just tried to like challenge like a, a, a more a more like mainstream LGBT lens as well as challenging Central American, Latin Americans, right? And and understanding and and recognizing that their people are dying. You know, that Roxana in this case was Honduran, era Catracha, and that she represented the Honduran community as a whole and that the Honduran community needs to recognize her and that age like that 
that like you know this this more mainstream LGBT platform also needs to recognize her. You know that she is also just as valuable as a Matthew, Matthew Shepard kind of person. You know that she died. Mm. There was an injustice that was done to her, and we need to remember people collectively as 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 our communities. You know. So I feel like he definitely challenged that intersection, that ese choque, right, of of different identities, and he tried to like make visible their their history, their lived experiences, and I think that it's it's I'm really glad that Roxana, that people recognize who Roxana is, and it, it this took community. This was a community effort for people to recognize the death of 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 a trans woman who died to complications of HIV in a detention center. She's not the first to have suffered. There have been about maybe 18 or more deaths um, under ICE due to HIV complications. And it's one of those things where, by obligation, they need to treat people who, are, who, who need treatment, right, who may need HIV treatment. Those conditions are, are terrible. And the, the journey in itself just takes a lot out of you. I haven't had a chance to accompany any folks in the caravans, but... Having been in Tijuana firsthand, having been in the shelters in Matamoros, Tijuana, Los Albergues, I could see firsthand just how draining that that journey must have been for people, how dehydrated people were, how little resources that they had, shoes, clothes, you know, et cetera, those things. And I can imagine that that journey really had taken a toll on her body. And then I wonder, had she been taking her medicine? And so... You know, those are the things that you, as people who are HIV positive and 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 have the capacity to take care of themselves, um, try to recognize. It's like, okay, am I taking my medicine? Am I um, am I healthy? How am I doing? What's my body telling me? And so, and then I can only imagine that journey that she took on, you know, with or without medicine. And so, when she was finally detained, I feel like her body and the condition that she was going through really was just like, I can't take this anymore, you know especially if the guards were mistreating her and physically abusing her when yeah. after the autopsy. In addition, we had your colleague, Kenyon Farrell, who's the senior editor for thebody.com, with us on the show some time ago. And he pointed out, rightfully so, that under U.S. law, migrants are supposed to be given medical treatment, especially for conditions like HIV and AIDS, you know, among among other diseases. So... This is just lends itself more to the lack of humanity and and dare I say criminality of the immigration system here in the U.S. You just reminded me that we spoke to you right about this time last year when you were in Tijuana or right along the border when when this whole thing went down where um, Border Patrol, I believe, was shooting tear gas at migrants at this time. Yeah, actually, I was there that day. I wasn't. I wasn't there by the river where they were tear gassing people. Yeah, you people. were on the U.S. side, correct? No, I was in Tijuana oh, when that happened. Okay. I could see the helicopters shooting out at people, or I don't know how it went through, but I could see helicopters in that part of the area. I didn't um, really. Um, at, at that moment, I didn't understand what was going on. I was at uh, Enclave Caracol, which is the space where Al Otro Lado helps um, a lot of the migrants going on that are that are coming through. So I was just helping with some intakes and stuff. But I recall that there was a group of, of folks because this was right around November. So, yeah, we're getting close to that date. This was in November when that happened. Um, a group of, of, of migrants from the caravans were going to like do a demonstration right by the border and that's when the U.S. started tear gassing into Mexico. 
which wow. is a huge like human rights violation right yeah. there. Like that's like almost you know I don't know what, what, what that would be in terms of like international laws, but they definitely violated some there. <laughs> and um, and you see the images, right? You see the women fleeing with the children. Yes. And um, it's just it's just really disgusting that ha- that had to happen. But then when you're on the other side of the border in Mexico, I remember when we were trying to get to um, Otay, the Otay border, we had to go back to the space because the pol- the Mexican police were coming through. And at that point, I saw them putting on like their ski masks, their ski masks so oh, that you wow. could hide their face. And at that point, I was like, that does not look good. That does not look good. And so we immediately got back in the car and we drove back into, um, you know, downtown Tijuana. You know, what would be así como cerca del Museo de Cera. And so we were just hanging out there until the coast was clear. But, you know, I just remember having this image in my head of all these, like, police officers in their pickup trucks and these, like, Mexican police officers with ski masks on shooting, like, rubber bullets at people. You know, that was a very... Like, uh, I had never seen anything like that, you know? Yeah, and anyone who's ever been to Latin America and seen something like that, it is very real when you see it firsthand. Um, But unfortunately, I would have to say that in the case of El Salvador, you know, the struggle for LGBTQ rights isn't going to get necessarily any better because there's a new president in El Salvador who ducked and dived with regards to the question of LGBTQ rights before he was elected president. We're talking about Nayib Bukele here. And now that he has been president, in a short time, he's cut various social programs, some of which included uh, programs that promoted women's rights and LGBTQ rights as well. Yeah. And if we are to be honest here, and I think um, Roque Ramir sort of alludes to this, is that and we could say this from one Salvador to another, that there's a lot of transphobia and homophobia within Salvadoran society that's very accepted, open, and and normalized. There's a reason why on this show we call this community the marginalized group within the marginalized group, not just because it's a fact, but because it's an inconvenient fact and an uncomfortable reality of, of, of society, particularly Salvadoran society, that we're both a part of, but we're also sort of embarrassed about, you know, and that's, there's a lot of honesty, I think, that Roque Ramirez alludes to there in that aspect, correct? I, I would definitely agree with you because there is, like, this machismo, like, this toxic masculinity that that's alive and well in the Salvadoran communities, unfortunately, and it's, uh, it's I don't know, like, really to what extent um, certain people can share this lived experience, but I've definitely seen that firsthand with, with my father, who I no longer talk to, right? And it's mm. been years. And so it's just one of those things where you kind of, like, understand. I try to make sense of it in, in a way. I'm thinking, like, you know, that transgenerational trauma that was bestowed upon our families that that made us run away from our country in the first place. I try to make sense of the violence maybe that they've witnessed um, to, to, be, to get a better grasp as to why they are the way they are, you know, but I haven't really had a chance to, to understand it any more than I can at this point. But I do know very well that, you know, it's, it's this machismo is, is, is like insidious and it's there in, in, our, in our cultura, unfortunately, you know, and 
I think that it's uh, these spaces that we're, you know, just being able to talk about it right now, being able to hold our families accountable, being able to make our allies aware of this, I think is important. And it takes, it's a process, you know, but I don't want to negate the fact that, that, that there may be some sort of an undertone of that transgenerational trauma in it as well. So I, I, I try to understand that when I think of my father, even though I no longer speak with him, but you know, because he uh, it was just a violent man overall, and and there's and you could just see the pain that he he experiences himself. I, I can imagine that maybe there's something more there as well. You know. In addition to that, I would say that I think one thing another another thing here that Roque Ramirez alludes to is that. This has to be pointed out. This has to be said out in the open because there's no rule that says that you can't you can't support immigrant rights and not point out some of the flaws like the homophobia and transphobia that exists within our society. You know, those things are not or should not be exclusive to one another and they should be, you know, you you can be both pro-immigrant and point out these sort of flaws and 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 deficiencies because there's no perfect monolithic society here when it comes to to migrants, especially when it comes to transphobia and homophobia as well. With that said, though, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. And I just want to point out here, I think, in my opinion, is a very important side note here. And this is something that you touched on earlier this year is the curious case of Hugo Salinas in El Salvador. So can you tell us about this particular case? Yes, um, Hugo Salinas is definitely an incredible person that I've had the honor to interview and speak to. And um, actually, Cindy made the introductions. Um, Cindy. Really? <laughs> She's actually, yes, my friend Cindy, also her stage name, Salvador Reina, who does cumbias. Oh, yeah. And, is, and her family, who's well-connected out here in D.C. So Hugo... He grew up in D.C. too. He came here maybe when he was like in his 20s after graduating from wow. UNAM, you know, in Mexico. He went to school out there, came out here, connected with her father, who was like his best friend, and just kind of like did a lot of great work in D.C. And in the article, he, you know, he shares how he did a lot of like um, HIV work out here. He always passed out condoms and, and, and other resources to youth out here, just kind of like giving them um, resources and, and having that awareness there. So when he went back to El Salvador to be a mayor of his town, like it really was just um, something, a, a next cha another chapter in his life, you know. But he also recognizes that his activism started in D.C., which is really cool. Wow, this is just a Salvadoran shout-out show <laughs> here on today's show, you know what I'm saying? So, But it's all love, you know, and, it's, and it all stems from remembering Roque Ramirez, Horatio Roque Ramirez. So, like I said before, a few weeks ago we had Kenyon Farrow, the um, senior editor for thebody.com, talk about how HIV and AIDS was now being used in this day and age as a means to prevent immigrants from, from entering the country. Based on what we discussed with regards to the work of Horatio Roque Ramirez and seeing what we know now about the plight of Central American migrants, particularly LGBTQ migrants from Central America. I want to get your take on this because we got Kenyans a few weeks ago. We want to get your take on this aspect as well because you were the co-writer to, mm -hmm. to this particular article. Yes, totally. So um, when I wrote this piece, I, I, um, I was moved by ACT UP's, um, one of ACT UP's demonstrations talking about how many people have died to complications of AIDS 
in these detention centers shortly after the the creation of of this of this entity right through the bush administration after 9/11 right we've seen how how um this affect of fear has been used as a as a hegemonic tool to attack communities like communities who actually need our help because you know it's it's tragic to know that these refugees living with HIV were escaping their countries who were maybe persecuting them only to die inside a cell or to die at the hands of the of of the US who prides itself in like taking in migrants and protecting refugees you know tampering with other countries politics because they feel they have to go in and save Especially. people you know so it's like it's such a such a conundrum it's such a conflicting conversation to have because who, who these people need needed assistance they needed some sort of medical assistance that's why they they came to us and they died here because of that and i think that that's what's really heartbreaking about it i really after have because you know Kenyon and i co-wrote the piece but having read also Kenyon's p- part on it like uh he he really he made such a great point that the Haitian community at this time was also being policed you know especially because yeah. there were a lot of HIV folks coming from Haiti, you know who were Haitian and so i thought that that was very very interesting to an insightful you know he's he's always been such a great mentor that i learned so much from him and so this was one of those times where we got to write a piece together and and i got to learn more you know and honestly like a lot of the organizations that i've collaborated with in the past who have honored roxana for example can speak on the fact that this is a this is a narrative that many trans women and trans men face as they come through you know and cross the border for example victoria castro is 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 um she's a, an an organizer you know she's an educator in um in san francisco's mission for this organization called ela you know para translatinas which is an incredible organization mm. out on 16th and mission and they're they're doing their own thing and so um she she's also from El Salvador. She's actually from the same town my family's from in Atacua, <laughs> Huachapan. <laughs> wow. And so when I met her, I met her when we were doing a vigil for Roxana and I got to learn about her a little bit more. I was living at the in the bay still. We got to, we're still really close and all and I got to understand that she kind of went through something similar you know as a migrant as a trans woman and now she but she's very fortunate she says to be in this side and alive and so it's really like her calling to also continue this work you know so we got people like you know like ruby who also you know mentors us you know ruby corado and um and Bambi Salcedo in Los Angeles right or Ariana Lint out in Florida these are all trans women who really have taken it upon themselves to address issues of immigration, HIV and other things that trans people face like the violence, the murders that are happening in even now up until 2019 when we've had over like 18 deaths already of of trans women being murdered, you know? Yeah, we haven't mentioned that as often as we should here that murder, capital M murder mm-hmm. happens quite frequently not just in El Salvador but in various other parts of Central America, not just in Central America, but in various parts of Latin America where, you know, homophobia and transphobia are, again, open, accepted, and to a certain extent normalized in a very, 
I would dare say, in a much more disturbing fashion than than here in the U.S. And even that's bad enough in and of itself. So, you know what? To all the journalists, students out there, and anyone in academia, we mentioned the concept of queer Central American studies. This is unclaimed real estate. This is a a, a field that. As Giuliani has mentioned, only a handful of people have really touched on. And so anyone who wants to get into academia and to document LGBTQ rights for for Latinos, this is a field that desperately needs to be covered. And it shouldn't be that it's just, it was just one person, Horatio Roque Ramirez, but there should be like 100 Roque Ramirez in this field, correct? Almost definitely. I feel that like his work definitely is is a milestone for many other people and for the next generation who wants to do this work. And and to also understand that doing this work involves so many arms. And so we can come from different angles. You know, I, I, I wanted to do this now within a legal lens, you know, and so being in Tijuana and doing immigration work that, you know, the immigration work that I've been doing these past few years with asylum work, and working with Caresen in L.A. and oh, these wow. <laughs> these other firms that that have done pro bono work for unaccompanied children in coming from Central America, that I just want to share that that b- what I've studied and what I learned, you know, and what Horacio also um, inspired me to do also comes from that. And so we we all can do things in different ways. It doesn't have to be academic in academia and research wise, but we can be like activists, yeah. artists, attorneys, you know, policymakers. We work from yeah. different lenses and recognize that as Central Americans, we have some sort of like, I want, I don't want to say obligation, but I, I statement, I do feel it's my obligation. I just don't want to impose that upon other people, but that's my obligation. You know, that's something that how am I going to continue to contribute to my Central American communities? That's my obligation and whatever it is that I do. And so and, I, and I'm not trying to impose that upon other people because I recognize that <laughs> traumas and PTSD is real and people are in different places in their lives. But that's where I come from. Like every time I want to do something, I need to find a way to honor my Central American community. And and I'm so thankful that the body allowed me to do this work um, in regards to Horacio. For me personally, I think it is our obligation and I do impose it on people sometimes (laughs) because my motto has been is that the people in the global south cannot afford to have dissidents in a privileged society such as you and I to become cynical. It's not our lives to lose and it's not our future to mortgage. But that's just my opinion. And I'll share more, though. I totally agree with you because sometimes I'll see I'll, I'll see people posting things on social media and talking about triggers and this and that. But yeah. then I'm just like, OK, you're doing your social media activism, but are you going to go to the border? Because they need your help. You're bilingual. Yeah. You have citizenship. You can cross the border. They need your help. We need your help because let me tell you the little like I, I, I and I say this specifically to my Central American generation. Like I really would love to see more people going out there and doing the work um, rather than just reposting things on Instagram or Twitter. <laughs> and so that's just me. And so I just kind of want to add that and throw that out there because it's very important for us to really just take on the work and however little or at what capacity people can, but to just maybe reflect upon what can they do, you know? That's at the very least that. So you you pretty much read my mind right there towards <laughs> the end. We have about one minute left. So before we let you go, I think we shouted out everyone, every Salvadoran here in the U.S. <laughs> and every Salvadoran organization here. But with that said, you know, 
to tie everything up here. There's just one more shout out, Roberto Lobato. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a bad. <laughs> He's great as well. He's great as well. <laughs> so, you know, finishing up here, we have one minute left. What do you hope people learn, you know, towards the end about the teachings of Horatio Roque Ramirez? Because it seems like, again, I've said this already, but I'll say it again. People are expanding upon this. And it's good to have you and, and other people like thebody.com, for example, fighting the good fight and trying to expand on this. But what do you hope people learn in the end about his life and his legacy? I hope that people understand that despite the fact that, you know, it, 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 it's the way that he his life ended was a tragedy that we can also pull from his research and recognize him as the academic who worked to be where he was in that time in his life, that it wasn't easy, especially someone who was Central American at the time. I can only imagine how how people would look at him, right? Because he didn't really stand out and he was different within that Chicano kind of movement. He wasn't, oh, yeah. he, he was a different movement. And so understanding that and respecting that is what I really hope people come to appreciate about his work, that it definitely stemmed from a different understanding of queer Latinidad. We've been speaking with Giuliani Alvarenga. He's a freelance writer for TheBody.com. His 2018 article is entitled Remembering Horatio Roque Ramirez. And we'll create a link to this article on our Twitter account as well. Giuliani Alvarenga, thank you very much once again for being on the show with us. Thank you. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone that you could check us out on our own website, which is latinomediacollective.com. You can follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. So on behalf of my co-producer, Abby Robert, this is Oscar Fernandez saying thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the show. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Ciao.